everyone. My name is Grace Beatty, and welcome to Wicked Women, the podcast. On this podcast, I will be discussing with leading experts some of history's most infamous and maligned women. Within each episode, I do not look to excuse or dispute the wrongs committed by some of these women, but I do strive to bring a more holistic and rounded understanding of each particular woman's story. Step back in time and come on this journey with me as we discover the lives and legacies of these fascinating women. In today's episode, we will be talking about the infamous Anne Boleyn, the doomed second wife of King Henry VIII of England. Many people are at least minimally aware of Anne Boleyn, or if not, there is a plethora of resources on her throughout the internet, libraries, museums, and more. So for today's episode, we're going to be focusing mainly on Anne Boleyn's story after her death and the ways in which her legacy have been interpreted by later generations. Joining me today will be Natalie Gruniga, the creator of the podcast Talking Tudors, and a lifelong Anne Boleyn fan. I will also be speaking with Adrienne Dillard, a historian who focuses on overlooked women's stories. She is best known for her novel The Raven's Widow, focusing on Jane Boleyn, Lady Rochford. When people think about wicked women, Anne Boleyn is usually one of the first names to come to mind. It seems that every generation has its own version of Anne. Slutty Anne, religious reformer Anne, innocent Anne, manipulative Anne, sexy Anne, evil Anne, educated Anne, feminist Anne, the list goes on. Thousands of people flock annually to locations Anne once walked, such as Hampton Court, Hever Castle, and the Tower of London and gobble up documentaries, films, and TV series that come out regularly devoted to her story. Henry VIII may have tried to eradicate Anne's memory after her downfall, but that only seemed to fan the flames of public fascination with this historical other woman. While Henry dreamed of possessing her in the flesh, subsequent generations have become determined to possess her memory. Born sometime in 1500, Anne was raised in a family of minor nobility, but with a mother descended from the powerful Howard family. In 1513, Anne was sent to the court of Margaret of Austria, and then to the court of France, in the train of Henry VIII's sister, Princess Mary, on the occasion of her marriage to the French king. These childhood years had a powerful effect on Anne, Seeing women in power who openly spoke their mind and had open views on religion helped shape Anne into the woman she later became. As Natalie Gruniga states, If we remember where she was raised, you know, where she grew up at the court of Margaret, Archduchess of Austria, and then at the, at the court of Queen Claude, where this question of the nature of women and how they should be portrayed, this debate has been going on since the 15th century in France. You know, it's a very active debate and Anne is in fact you know she has these examples of women that rule she has Louise of Savoy their incredible woman she has Marguerite de Navarre she has Queen Claude you know she has a, a, amongst that kind of group that she's 
she's seeing and that we think she's spending time with is another incredible woman called Anne de Graville. So she was a, a French, very erudite woman and, and a poet who actually was disinherited by her family because she chose to marry for love, another one as well. Uh, well, we think, we think she chose to marry for love. She married her first cousin and her family was not happy with that. And she was this this incredible poet and and definitely inspired by Christine de Pisan's work in the 15th century and this question of women and power. And so Anne has all that example. She's she's very observant and is always watching and always learning. And and so I think, why not? Why can't we see her as at some point thinking, well, why shouldn't I have power, especially once she's queen? So I think once she's queen, you know, Henry expected her to be a certain way, a certain, you know, what's expected of queen submissive quiet just you know doing what their husbands say but of course this was not Anne wasn't raised to be like that and she had these great examples and Catherine of Aragon as well another formidable woman who Anne looked up to from very young one of the first or the first letter we have of Anne's is a letter where she's basically saying she can't wait to come to court so that she can serve Catherine and she wants to do it so well so you know that's a 12 year old roughly 12 year old Anne who wants to learn and to be very, you know, to be highly educated and cultured so that she can do justice when she comes home to serve Queen Catherine. So she's got all of all these examples. Um, so I think it's possible that she thought, yeah, that she she did want to wield some actual real power. But as I mentioned with that quote before, this is exactly what Henry didn't want. And I think it was actually just in her nature, to be honest with you. I My personal opinion is that <laughs> and there'll be people that will disagree with this, but I think I think that Mary Boleyn was in fact the eldest sister. I think she was older than Anne. And I think the fact that Anne is is first sent to the continent speaks to her intelligence and her wit. And and I think this is also supported. We we find evidence to support this in Mary's own letter, the only surviving letter of Mary Boleyn, which is a very long letter that she writes to Thomas Cromwell when she's lost favor she's lost Anne's favor she's lost George's favor she lost her parents favor because she's married a man without permission um and she's married a man beneath her station importantly that's probably the most important thing and so so she writes and and you get a good sense of how she has felt like she's sort of been in their shadow you know in Anne's shadow for a long time I think she was a very special personality and one that we don't see all the time um, could inspire really fierce, fierce loyalty. And we see that with even though the men accused alongside her are so pressured to admit to this crime that none of them have committed, they don't. Even when faced with the most horrific end possible, which was a traitor's death, you know, they still just don't incriminate her or say, okay, yes, this is, you know, they just don't, but there's no bargaining there. Only, of course, Mark Smeaton does admit, but we always have to remember that poor Mark Smeaton was not. A gentleman like the rest and he would have faced the full horrors of a traitor's death which was hanging drawing and quartering had it not been um commuted by the king so you have to always keep that in mind when you think of his admission of so-called guilt yeah so i think strong women they they scare people don't they like in the 16th century like like i said earlier women were seen to be inferior in all aspects so you know, there's this idea that women have to be quiet, that they have to just, they're either controlled by their father, their husbands, their brothers, some man in the family. And when you have a woman like Anne, who of course, we should remember also was the first woman when she was made Marcus Pembroke in, on the 1st of September, 1532, she was the first woman to receive a hereditary 
peerage in her own right. This is a huge, huge big deal. You know, nothing connected to her relationship with Henry. Well, we can argue that, but she would have kept this for herself and her children had she not married Henry. That was the idea behind it. Um, so that is a huge deal for Anne. So, you know, and then, of course, when she's crowned as queen, she's crowned with the, the crown of St. Edward the Confessor, which is normally reserved for reigning monarchs. Like, these things are big, huge milestones that occur in Anne's life. And and I do think the fact that she was outspoken, you know, there's this idea outspoken women, like a sort of trouble, you know, that's that sense that through history we've gotten that if you talk too much or that kind of idea. So I think it has contributed in some way. But um, but it is it's wonderful to look at and to explore and to see how at this in the same way it's inspired a lot of women, you know, and men as well to do. I know that her courage, Anne's courage, has always inspired me. And whenever I'm faced with anything even slightly challenging that I start wanting to I don't know, complain or I think of Anne and I think of the courage that she showed in her life and and the perseverance. And I like to think that Elizabeth, her daughter, would have done the same and thought about her. Um, so that same outspokenness that kind of attracted Henry at the beginning, he loved it in his mistress. He then despised it in his queen. He couldn't, he couldn't stand it. Um, still inspires people today. So I think in a way, you know, it was a, it was a good thing. We're still talking about her, you know, 500 years later, not just talking, but some people will get into very big heated arguments about her. You know, she's still, this is what amazes me. She still polarizes opinion but she also still inspires that sort of fierce loyalty that she inspired in the 16th century i don't think people ever looked at anne or george berlin or thomas berlin and felt sort of indifference like i don't think they ever you know i think you either loved them or you really despised them they're, they're sort of those people that, that were always kind of divisive and polarizing because i think of how um quite brilliant they were and that doesn't rub everyone up the, the right way and i think they were confident you know, I think they were confident in their um, skills and in their talents as well, which in the end grated on poor, um, poor paranoid Henry. Returning to England in 1522, Anne quickly caught the attention of Henry VIII. Many popular histories and fictional portrayals paint Anne as having her eye on the British crown from the moment she returns to England, plotting and planning a path to the ultimate seat of power. What is often ignored or misrepresented as canny sexual manipulation, is Anne's continual refusal of Henry's advances. It is only once it becomes clear he will not take no for an answer that it appears Anne sets her sights on a bigger prize than just royal mistress. As Adrian Dillard states, Anne was very ambitious, and I think that she had... Like, I do think that she went into it as, you know... um, not necessarily at the very beginning, because I don't think that she was very interested in the king at the time, right? Because she wanted to make a really good marriage that was kind of beyond reproach. And, uh, but she did want to move up, right? She wanted to, she wanted to marry Percy. She wanted to move up and... You know, I think that she kind of had Mary's example ahead of her of, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to fall into the trap of being with the king, right? But I think he really tried to woo her with these love letters and he was promising her these things, right? And, and 
he was just so determined and persistent. And I think she kind of thought, well, I'm in this position, right? I am, I am being put in a position of power right now. And I can influence the policy at court. I can influence the religious establishment. I can influence a lot of these things that I shouldn't be able to influence because I'm a woman and I'm a commoner and I'm a, you know, and, and for a woman like her who was really smart, she was like, this is a really, a really good situation that I have somehow been put into. And you know, it's not good in the fact that I have to supplant this other woman, but you know, she was like, I can, I, I can change, you know, I can make our court so much more progressive than Catherine can. And she can't even have any kids anyways. Like she's, she can't give the king an heir. She can't. So I think that, that she very much justified there's actually a quote that's from the Book of Common Prayer that says, what the heart desires, the mind justifies. And so I think in her heart, she wanted to use this power, you know, for the good. I'm going to make the best out of it. Like, right? Um, I'm not going to be like Mary. You're not going to set me aside. Because I'm going to make damn sure that you can't. <laughs> and actually, she did make sure he couldn't set her aside. And I think that that's why he inevitably killed her. Because he couldn't see any other way out. Right? So in the end, it kind of worked against her. Because when she did finally say, okay, I'll go into a nunnery. I'll recede from, you know, he was like, oh, no. I tried that before and it did not work. So we're going to just like stop this from ever going any further. So it, it worked to her advantage, but also to her disadvantage at the very end. Oh, I still think it's a pretty common idea. But at the same time, because of the progress that women's movements have made over the years, People are starting to not see that as a terrible thing, right? Like, even if she was just her ultimate goal was the throne, like, what's wrong with that, right? You know, she wanted, she saw what she wanted to do and she was working towards that. So I think that we, we just are finding ambitious women less shocking, which is great. <laughs> Natalie believes this is one of the most common misconceptions when it comes to Anne's story. If we're talking about sort of myths or misconceptions about Anne Boleyn that I think I've come to understand in, you know, 20 years of, of studying this period or whatnot, is that one of the most pervasive and I think entrenched misconceptions is this, is this idea that she woke up one day you know, disgruntled with her life and decided that she was going to topple a, a brilliant and well-loved queen. I think this there's just, there's no evidence to substantiate that, I don't think. In fact, I think the evidence paints a very different picture, a much more complicated, complex, nuanced picture of what happened. I don't think there was ever a day where she woke up and decided she was going to, you know, take Catherine's crown. I think we forget that they had history, that there's years of loyal service to Catherine of Aragon before 
Henry's eyes sort of turn, turn towards Anne. And I think we forget also that the decades of loyal service that the Boleyn family gave to not just Henry VIII, but also Henry VII before him. And, you know, and that there was so much at stake for them. They were a family already on the rise. Thomas Boleyn was was greatly admired and respected by his contemporaries, a, a brilliant, brilliant ambassador and a brilliant man. And he'd raised his children to have, obviously, the best life possible. But I don't think he'd raised them to one day take over and be queen, you know. And I think there was a lot at stake here. These they they were open to to people, of course, being jealous of them. He knew that. So I think it's it's not the case that it's such a simple sort of black and white story. I think there's a lot more to it and a lot more factors that contributed to it. I think there is a point where Anne decides that she can do good via this role. Um, I think her faith had a lot to do with it. And I think she really, at some point, thought that this is God's plan for her. And that's why she she then sort of moves down that road. But but no, I don't think she just simply woke up one day and thought, yeah, I'm going to be Queen of England. Henry and Anne's courtship, known at court as the King's Great Matter, lasted until 1533. And during that time, Anne rose to the role of queen in all but name. This leads to another negative element of her story. The fact that for the majority of her relationship with Henry, Anne was the other woman, and Catherine of Aragon was Henry's wronged queen. Anne Boleyn's depiction often feature her at odds with other women, whether it be Catherine of Aragon, Mary I, Jane Seymour, Jane Boleyn, or others. For many people then and today, one of the most unforgivable parts of Anne's story is how Henry's first wife, Catherine of Aragon, was treated. Many have accused Anne of being the instigator to the cruel abuse of Catherine. For both Natalie and Adrian, it shows a common thread in much of women's history, a concept of pitting two women against each other within a historical narrative. Here's Adrian. I really think it just plays into the archetype that has kind of dogged women for centuries. Like, we like to catfight. We like to, you know, undermine each other and work against each other. And to some extent, I think that 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 does happen. And I don't think it's because we do that on purpose or we're bad people. But I think that the world likes to pit us against each other. Right. And so we see that still happening time and time again. And plus, like we as women or as not as women, but as humans, we love scandal. We love to we just love drama. Right. And so you see it. And it's really fascinating because everybody is always pitted against Anne. You have Jane Boleyn who's pitted against her. You have Jane Seymour who's pitted against her. You've got Catherine of Aragon who's pitted against her. And not just because they were vying for the same man's affections, but because, you know, we see Catherine as like, you know, as they saw her then. She's old and she's boring and she doesn't have fun. And, you know, she's very uptight. And Anne is very clever and smart and all of these things, right? And so I think people just can't help themselves. <laughs> you never see men really pitted against each other in that way because there's always this underlying, kind of like in this, between Thomas Cromwell and, and Henry VIII. Like, obviously, 
towards the end, there was this drama and this fighting. But at the same time, they're both shown as these very respectable men. And they're just fighting because they have such strong beliefs in what they believe and, you know, the power that they're trying to get. And, like, it's inevitable and it's okay. But women, you know, we don't get that same perspective. <laughs> Especially with Jane Boleyn. Because we like to see her, you know, peeping in keyholes and causing, like, distension between people and lying and manipulating and all of these other things and it's it's just you know I mean these women were so busy just trying to live <laughs> you know of course there was probably some gossip and there was a little bit of sniping not even just among women but among the men we just don't talk about the men doing it Right? I mean, there's always a little everyday strife and, and all of that. But I mean, for the most part, like these women, they're trying to have babies and raise them and like, you know, survive in this man's world that's really cutthroat. And, um, and the funny thing is, is that there's so much evidence to the contrary. Like Jane was, was, a big part of the Boleyn family and she helped Anne and she was there in moments that Anne really needed somebody to support her, right? Because her sister, Mary, was banished and she needed a contemporary who would help her. And time and again, we see that, that Jane shows up, you know, and even in like the coronation, she rides much higher than what her position would dictate. She's right there behind Anne on one of her greatest triumphs, you know? So it's like there's so much evidence to the contrary. But gosh, people just, they just love a cat fight. And Natalie believes. I think we just like to pit one against the other. And, you know, there's, there's brilliant stuff being done, done now to show their connection rather than you know what united them rather than what separated them but it's the same with Jane Seymour James Seymour um it's difficult because Jane Seymour is a difficult one to get to know because obviously her time was very brief and she was kind of you know a lid was put on her pretty quickly by Henry in fact not long after Anne's execution she is trying to sort of stamp her mark politically and and make some quite bold statements and Henry basically says, just remember the last one was executed, not because, you know, not because she had had sex with five other men, but because she actually meddled with state affairs is what Henry tells her. So, you know, very quickly shutting her down, go and entertain yourself in other ways, basically don't even attempt it. Um, so even that already is like an admission from Henry that it's not that Anne committed adultery or treason. It's the fact that she intended on ruling and she wanted to rule and she wanted to make a difference. So, you know, I do feel for Jane because I think that must have just been an awful moment where she thought, oh, goodness, you know, what, what, what is happening here? But, um, yes, I think this idea of pitting people, I don't know why. I'm not quite sure. Is it a human thing that we like to have drama? Or I, I don't know. Ex you know what I mean? I don't know exactly exactly what it is, but there is definitely this idea that if you admire Anne, you can't admire Catherine. That's impossible. Whereas, of course, that's so untrue. You know, and again, I would remind people of the years they spent together, you know, the years that Anne served her. And we don't, there are no records of 
anything untoward happening in that time. So we can surmise that it was, you know, a perfectly good working relationship where she served her queen well. She was trained for that, of course, at the best courts in Europe. And they would have eaten together, laughed together, worshipped together. There was just all of that element that I think we lose when we make this just, oh, Anne stole Henry and, you know, that sort of thing. So I, I think seeing the the things that these wonderful women had in common is, is much more rewarding and interesting than just thinking, oh, they were rivals for this or rivals for that. After removing Catherine from court and visiting France alongside Anne, where it is believed their relationship was officially consummated, Henry married Anne in a secret ceremony in January of 1533. By June, Anne had been crowned Queen of England. Three years later, in 1536, to the astonishment and horror of many, Anne Boleyn was executed under charges of treason and adultery, becoming the first queen in English history to be executed. Anne Boleyn had become well-known throughout Europe during the King's Great Matter, and her reputation was rarely positive. She was seen as the King's Great Whore, who ensnared him in her sinful ways, taking him away from his devoted wife and the Catholic faith. This image of Anne has been challenged by academic historians for quite some time, but her negative reputation still appears regularly in media portrayals, as Natalie states. I think there, as you say, she has this, there's been some work done to rehabilitate her and to show a more nuanced um, portrayal of her and a more complex woman, I suppose. But, you know, you still get, of course, people that, that find their way here through novels like The Other Berlin Girl or films like that. And that's perfectly fine because it's a great starting point. You get interested, you know, you want to go into research. The problem is when that's used as kind of evidence of, you know, what Anne was like and, and those sorts of things, that things get a bit complicated. And because I do, I have for many years run a number of social media accounts and, and have this sort of online presence. I definitely see that she is still, you know, there, there are some people that kind of still see her, her as the homewrecker. The seductress, the, the woman that stole Henry from Catherine, the rightful queen. And and this view is still, it's being questioned, obviously, and there's Anne's got a lot of support out there, but um there is there are still people that, that do believe that and see that kind of that kind of view of her. Um which is I suppose a little a little disappointing, but it, it is understandable though. But it's it's I think the story is just so much more complicated. People want a simple answer, don't they? Why did she do that? What happened? Why did she die? But there, there really aren't any simple answers. It's all a very complicated story. They were humans. They were very layered, as we all are. You know, they were doing the best, making decisions on the spot with the knowledge they had. They, I think we forget sometimes with the Tudors that they didn't have the benefit of hindsight. We know how this story ends. They didn't. They were just like us, waking up every day and thinking, OK, what's going to happen today? How am I going to respond to this? How am I reacting to this? You know, just just humans, really. And I think, sadly, this we see this in, in general with responses to crimes against women nowadays, don't we? Oh, she drank too much or she was wearing something that was too provocative. Like, it's it's a tragedy, really, that we're still having to to discuss these things, that they still, uh, these things are still an issue. But I think with Anne, definitely there are people that would say she deserved it, of course. Look what she did to Catherine. It's karma, isn't it? And, you know, you see this over and over in, in commentary, online and it, it's sad that they take such a simplistic view of it of course because what happened to Anne was was horrific it was it was brutal it was you know a shock even to people living in the 16th century because I think sometimes people think well 
they were accustomed to executions and you know losing people that they loved and gruesome stuff but this event still completely sent shockwaves throughout England and Europe it was just unheard of and it was brutal it was calculating it was really that what the king did was dismantle and take down the, the Boleyn family and any supporters and this was a very calculated thing that he did you know i don't i don't agree with the view that oh he believed that she was guilty i don't agree with any of that i think if we're looking for somebody to blame we have the king and that's i think where the you know of course yet thomas cromwell there that aided him etc but i really i i don't know why some people choose to kind of let henry off the hook i really think that um yeah that henry has a lot to answer for in this situation i think it has to do with the fact that we want to believe in their love story don't we we really want to believe that this was a great love story that they were in love that they fell in love and that then something happened to cause the king to not love her anymore um so i think you know if we if we believe that henry somehow thought that she was guilty of those crimes you know the punishment for treason in tudor england is execution you can kind of go down that path of he couldn't do anything about it of course he could have but you know you you can kind of run with that and it kind of saves that love story a little bit doesn't it if he had no choice if he had to execute this woman because she'd committed these crimes you can kind of let him off the hook and still believe in the love story it's it's much more complicated when you realize that henry knew she was innocent then it's very hard to kind of reconcile the king that could be so charismatic and so loving and so romantic and you know with the king that that ordered every single detail of his wife's execution it's just difficult and i think sometimes we like simple kind of response to simple answers and this just doesn't have one unfortunately inbolin's story has become iconic not only for her unexpected rise but also for her shocking downfall films like anne of a thousand days capture the startlingly short amount of time between Anne's coronation and ultimate execution. This aspect of Anne's legacy has intrigued people for generations and often sees them return again and again to her story, trying to comprehend the unimaginable. While many people are familiar with the six wives of Henry VIII, Anne often stands out among them. She has more films, television series, and books focusing solely on her story than any of the other wives combined. She overshadows the narrative, even when another of the six wives, Catherine Howard, was also executed. But what brings Anne's story to the forefront? As Adrian discusses, she defied so many conventions of what it meant to be an English woman, because obviously, you know, she was raised in in the foreign courts, and so she had a lot more of the typical behaviors and the attitudes that you would find in these these other courts that were, you know, I mean, by virtue of where they were they received so many more of the like trends before england did because england was it was kind it was an island unto itself right and so they weren't very far behind but you know the people who were who were in france and in um you know the low countries they sort of were a little more progressive 
than than the English court was. And so she brought this like kind of new and exciting way of looking at things. But then I also think that her death was just so shocking. Like even people who didn't even care for Anne were just shocked because, you know, and the queen had never been executed before, you know, particularly in such torrid circumstances. And, you know, I always say everybody loves a scandal. <laughs> So it was just like, you know, this huge scandal and just this monumental thing that happened to this really bright star. And so I think that that really contributed a lot to it. It is still as shocking, but not in the way, I guess it's not surprising. It's almost like people are, okay, we've seen this before. It's just not as, I don't think it hits people quite so hard. And I think that's really true even today. The way that people talk about Katherine Howard is so vastly different than the way that they talk about Anne Boleyn. There really was no evidence at all that Anne did what she was accused of, right? And though there's, there really isn't much more evidence that Catherine did what she was accused of, I think that the propaganda machine of the Tudor period was in high gear. Like by that point, it had had a lot of practice and it had a lot of steam and it, it knew how to work. And so there was a lot of, I think the way that it was treated during the time period, it was like, oh, she actually did deserve this. Did you read that letter? Did you like, you know, and look at the way she behaved beforehand. And, and I still think to this day, like there's just a lot of misogyny in the world. You know, we have this view of women and we see Catherine as just this empty headed you know, good time gal who liked to have fun and, you know, like to sleep around. And we still, you know, as a single woman dating today, you know, I'm in my 40s. And there is this perception of like, even the way that men treat us, right? They send us unsolicited rose pictures and they expect that you know we're gonna put out on the first time and we're gonna you know and and I think that that's the way that Katherine Howard was viewed because she was very strong in her sexuality right but part of that comes from the fact that she was groomed to be that way so they ignore the grooming and it's like rape culture today. Well, what were you wearing? What were you doing? Where were you alone? So I think that that definitely has a big part of it. Whereas people see Anne as like, oh, this is really shocking. And she didn't, you know, she didn't behave in the same way as Catherine. Um, you know, because... A lot of her stuff is we talk about her being a reformer, 
like, right? Her Protestantism, her links to religion, but Catherine doesn't have that. So it's, it's really unfair because both are equally shocking and equally undeserved. But there are all these other aspects to Anne that we ignore when it comes to Catherine. People learn about Anne Boleyn through a myriad of ways. Some meet her for the first time in school while learning about the tumultuous Tudor dynasty. But just as many learn about her through those books, television shows, movies, and museums. For our two guests, they learned about Anne through these routes. Here is Natalie. Look, if the accent hasn't given me away yet, so I'm a born and, born and bred Sydney side as so I live in Australia. So I suppose the good thing for me is that I kind of came to this with a bit of an open, sort of open mind, open slate, because we don't learn British history at school here. So unless you go yourself and do some digging and some research, you know, I, you probably won't even encounter them, to be honest, until until sort of after school or depending what your interests are. So I didn't know very much about her when I started, you know, looking into this period, which I think is a good thing because I think we all, you know, if you learn about her at school, you've already got some preconceptions that are going to be difficult to get rid of as you're, you know, looking at different sources and things. So I really didn't know very much. That is the honest truth. It's It's been a long time now that I've been researching her life. So obviously things have changed, but at the beginning, I just knew the very sort of basics, you know, that we, we know about her, but didn't learn about her at school. So a little bit different to how some other people have come to it. It was like so many, I think, you know, you probably have heard this before. It was a book, in fact, that first inspired my, my interest in the Tudors. And it was a book that my sister lent me. Maybe you've read The Secret Diary of Anne Boleyn by Robin Maxwell, which is a sort of classic. I think if you love the Tudors and you haven't read that yet, add it to your list. It's been, I don't know how many prints, it's up to, it's like 20 something, you know, print and, and yeah, it's amazing translated into all these different languages. And Robin is fantastic and, and very lovely and wonderful to chat to. So it was that book that sort of first ignited my interest in the Tudors. And then I just so happened to be going on a, a trip around Europe, but I had a couple of days in London prior and I asked my sister, you know, what should I see? And she's like, well, definitely go to the Tower of London and definitely go to Hampton Court. So I did do those two things. And, and I have to say, Grace, it just absolutely fueled the fire. I was just immediately captured by this idea that I'm standing somewhere where people stood a thousand years ago. I'm looking at a building that was a thousand years old. You know, all of that just absolutely captured my imagination. And I think with Anne, I remember standing at the tower and it wasn't the, there's a lovely Sort of memorial there now, but it was only a plaque that just listed the people that had been executed at that point. And I remember seeing her name and just thinking, oh, I really want to know why this happened. You know, how did she go from Queen of England to suddenly being executed here? So I think I've kind of devoted my life to answering that question, to be honest with you. And here is Adrian. Well, um, ironically, it's kind of funny. I think that the first time I ever heard mention of her actually was when I was in like middle school. So I think I was probably like 12 or 13. And we just like literally was just kind of a mention of her and Henry VIII. And mostly it was about Henry. It wasn't really, I think she just was mentioned once. And I, I never really thought about her again um after that until uh you know the other Boleyn girl came out and I took my mom to see it 
And it was so funny because, like, my mom, she does not know, like, she doesn't really know anything about history. She just kind of, like, went along because I wanted to go. And through the whole thing, I was like, this isn't right. No, I don't think that happened. No, I'm not sure how I feel about this. And I didn't know anything about her, right? But it was just, like, some kind of instinct in me that said, I don't, this doesn't, sit right with me so of course I had to go out and start you know reading about her and that's how I got interested it's interesting even just since that movie has come out seeing it's almost like it inspired all of these you know talking tutors and the Anne Boleyn files and the tutors like it inspired all of these these things to kind of come into existence and just seeing how her the perception of her has changed over the last two decades has been amazing that's crazy to think it's been like almost two decades (laughs) even though she was you know pretty terrible in that book and that movie you still felt this empathy for her and you know I know that uh Natalie Portman is probably not everybody's favorite Anne Boleyn but just seeing her at the end on the execution block and or you know scaffold and feeling what it was like what it must have been like for her and then you also had this really deep empathy for George Boleyn and Mary Boleyn and you know I think that that reflects in Anne as well because we see her compared to the two of them and yeah she is a little different a little more ambitious a little more bold and snarky and sarcastic but at the same time there's this tenderness inside of her that you witness as things start to unravel and she's panicking and and I think that you know we just as humans we connect with that suffering and so I think it really did inspire this a whole different way of looking at her. Anne Boleyn's appeal has never waned but in recent years, she has taken on a new image as a feminist icon. Her ambition, manipulation, and sexuality, so reviled by previous generations, are now often celebrated as proof that she was a woman well ahead of her time. But she has also taken on the persona of a religious reformer for many today, attempting to combat the negative versions of Anne and instead focus on her charitable efforts. As Natalie points out, This has become a prominent aspect of Anne's story in media portrayals. Yeah, the question of how much Anne influenced the the English Reformation is is a big one. And again, another one of these things that is absolutely hotly debated and people have different views. Um, I definitely think she played a role. How much of a role is tricky is obviously tricky to assess. But um, so one of our accounts suggests that Anne, in fact, suggested a solution to the, the great matter to Henry. And that was, of course, the work of William Tyndale. So, and a particular work called Obedience of a Christian Man. So this is a scene we have seen fictionalized because, you know, it's a powerful scene for Anne if this is how it it played out. But basically in this book, it's quite, you know, there's a lot of things in it, but it basically argues that the, uh, argues for the supreme authority of the scripture 
in the church, so the word of God, and the part that Henry loved, of course, argues for the supreme authority of the king within his own realm or within the state. And, and the story or the account that we get from the Elizabethan period is that Anne had marked some passages to show Henry. Henry read, and I can't remember them word for word, but there are things like um, if one of Henry's subjects sins, then he, is, he should be judged by the king. Nobody else, just by the king. But if Henry sins, he's, he should only be judged by God and no one else could kind of say anything about that. Henry is only answerable, answerable to God, whereas his subjects are answerable to him and nobody else. So there's no room for the Pope in this version. Um, and Henry loved it. And he apparently said, well, this is a book for me and all things to read. You know, that sort of line has gone down in history. So there is, of course, this possibility that this is true, that and and definitely owned books by William Tyndale, her um, 1534 edition of the Bible translated by Tyndale still exists, still in the British Library. So she definitely was interested in reform. She had a genuine interest in, in, in monastic reform. She had a genuine interest in, in um, getting the Bible out there in the vernacular and encouraging people to, to read the Bible in their own language. And she, in fact, owned Bibles in French and in English and encouraged the ladies later when she was queen to, to read them in English. So it makes sense that she played this part. That that does make sense. But unfortunately, what's difficult is to assess where Anne's influence ends and where Henry's ego took over. Because I think, you know, we know Henry had the, 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 the size of Henry's ego is impossible to actually even describe when you, when you think, when you know that you are, you know, there's God and then there's you, that obviously plays, you know, plays a big part in this story. Um, he doesn't see himself as answerable to anyone else. He loves the idea of being supreme, you know, head of the church in his own country. He loves the idea of getting rid of the Pope. <laughs> this is all, you know, this all really appeals to him. So um, I think I think that she def definitely did play a role, but to what extent, you know, would, the, would Henry have gone down this road had it not been for Anne? I don't know, because he really did all of this so that he could marry her. So, you know, would it eventually have happened? Yeah, probably, because, you know, it seems that things were heading in that direction. People were more interested in these questions um, of reform and, and all this sort of stuff. So so I think she, she played a part, but I think um, the fact that she's a woman obviously has also played a role because, as I'm sure, Grace, you know, that in this period women were seen as inferior in every aspect, so intellectually, you know, physically, emotionally, morally, importantly morally, and they were seen as a sort of corrupting element, as a as an element that could tempt people to to do things that they probably shouldn't do. So I suppose if you're not happy with the decision Henry made to split from the Pope and you don't want to blame him for it, she's an easy scapegoat, isn't she? Anne's religious beliefs, I think, perhaps had she lived longer, may have evolved into what we would now call a Protestant, but certainly she wasn't at the time. She was what people loosely called evangelicals, you know, she she didn't subscribe to some of the radical ideas that were around at the time, like denying the sacrifice of the mass. When she's in the tower, in fact, twice, she asks for the Holy Sacrament and she affirms her innocence on it. And just the, the day before she's executed, she invites um, the lieutenant of the, the, sorry, the constable of the tower, William Kinston, to come and actually witness her taking the sacrament and, and affirming that she had never been disloyal to Henry in that way, which is basically... You know, it's like taking a, a lie test now for people in the 16th century. She's on death's door and she takes mass and affirms her innocence 
you know, this very quickly got to Shupui. He had a spy in the tower, the imperial ambassador, who must have thought, well, you know, what is going on here? Because that is is very, very strong evidence of her innocence. Um, so she, so Anne definitely rejected papal authority. Obviously, that's one of her her views. But in, but she didn't subscribe to these more radical ideas. Um, she definitely was profoundly committed to the Bible. That is one thing we can say about Anne. And we can also say that about her brother, George, as well. They were both profoundly committed to the Bible. And I think this is one of the sort of main areas of reformers, if we call them loosely reformers at this time. But it was such a fluid thing, you know, during Anne's lifetime. There was no real set um, ideas yet. People were kind of discussing things. And there were lots of things that couldn't be talked about at court because they were just too, you know, they caused just like things like um, purgatory, the meaning of purgatory, um, yeah, the pilgrimages, saints, marriages of priests. There were so many issues that were too contentious to discuss, but they were the things that were being talked about while Anne was alive. Um, so, so I think we can say that she took an active um, role in monastic reform. We have evidence of that. We have evidence of her profound commitment to the Bible. We have evidence, of course, that she didn't um, support radical ideas, that she rejected the Pope. And then there's all the other great sort of sides of the reformers, which is about championing education, about trying to improve the lives of the, the more needy people. And she definitely did that, absolutely. And this idea of quality education and, and that it's worth investing in. As a teacher myself, I just love that. That's one thing that I really connect with Anne on. Um, and she promoted scholars. She promoted uh, other reformers. She was sort of seen a little bit like a sort of um, a safety net, you know, during her, her time, her ascendancy and her time as queen. If people got into trouble on the continent or whatnot, having books that were banned, they did tend to reach out to Anne um, and herself owned many banned books and was able, of course, through her influence to to not get into trouble um, with that. But so, I, yes, this idea that she was this Protestant martyr is one of the, the views. And I think we get this, of course, from the Elizabethan period. And it's just being carried on as well. Because um, when they're trying to rehabilitate Anne, they're trying to curry favour with Elizabeth, who is a Protestant. Of course, you know, they're just reading the story backwards there again. But um she probably would have gotten there, I think, had she, you know, been allowed to live longer. But I think important to to note that neither her or Henry were Protestants. You know, people I think sometimes get confused because he kicked off the Reformation. They think, oh, he wasn't. It. Henry was very conservative, in fact, and and walking his religious line was really tricky because you could not go too far one way or the other, or you would find yourself on on the executioner's block or you know, burnt or something, which was even worse. So yeah. Um, yeah, very dangerous to know exactly, you know, what was too far. But Henry was very conservative. And, um, yeah, I think that is another misconception that, you know, this idea that that he he wasn't really a Catholic. Henry died a Catholic, a Catholic man. That's sort of the, the bottom line. Yes, he brought in some changes. There were some things that were being questioned. But Henry himself was always very conservative. Of course, he was raised a Catholic. That's all he sort of knew. You know, he was... This is what he, he'd been sort of known from childhood. And I don't think the problem was ever the, the sort of dogma or the, the, the points of religion. I think it was more, as we've said, that he really enjoyed this idea of not having anyone as an intermediary between himself and God. And the fact that we see, you know, in 1534, these kind of acts of parliaments are passed and when, and, and basically they, they stop people from being able to, to reach out to a foreign power, to appeal to anybody else. He is the power and the only power in his realm once all those acts are passed and it makes it very difficult for anyone to challenge him on 
absolutely anything, it's very dangerous, you know, and that's why we see, of course, people, members of the Pole family fleeing overseas um, because it's it's an impossible situation. You either agree with Henry or you die. That's, that's basically your two choices that you have. And so very difficult and challenging time for the English people. However, Anne Boleyn's life and legacy is still hotly debated. It seems we will never stop arguing over her, admiring or reviling her, reinventing her or discussing her. Within the surge of reinterpretation, many of the negative opinions and misconceptions surrounding her story have stayed. While there are depictions of Anne as a modern feminist icon, you will still see portrayals such as the other Boleyn girl, showing Anne in a shockingly bad light. For Natalie, people's opinions on Anne Boleyn have always been divided, and she doesn't see that changing anytime soon. Still quite a, a bit of a mixed bag. Um, I think it depends on your generation. It really does, and depends on, I suppose, your moral code and your, you know, we obviously we bring, we every whenever we're looking at history, we're looking at through our own lens, aren't we? So it's it's sort of tricky to say but i think i think generally yes there is this feminist obviously angle now which is which is wonderful um but like i said there are i think there are still the people that can't quite get past the fact that she was the other woman and that that causes them a lot of difficulty and they're not able to you know they feel uh, that an injustice was done to catherine and it was 100% absolutely but i think laying the blame on anne is just an easy way out again like i, I don't think you know I think it's a much more complicated story. And if we want to learn from it, then certainly getting below this sort of surface level look at, oh, well, she's the other woman and Catherine was the, the sort of saintly one that was set aside. It's the same with the treatment of um, Mary, who became Mary the first. You know, people don't like for some reason to blame Henry for that. It is just, let's just blame Anne for, for Mary's treatment. The, the sad thing with that aspect is that Mary found out very quickly after Anne's execution that because her life got a lot worse, that it was in fact her father that was, you know, that was pulling the strings. And, and so that's an interesting thing, a little bit off topic, but interesting. So yeah, I think going a little bit deeper, looking below surface level, I, I think it's generally positive. You know, we, we're seeing her inspire a lot of young people, a lot of websites and blogs and podcasts obviously coming out. To, to study her, which is absolutely fantastic. But I think we've still got some work to do as well. <laughs> she has this, this far-reaching effect and it really crosses boundaries. You know, I've, I'm currently running a course on Amberlynn, a, a year-long course, and we have people from many different countries. You know, in fact, we've got people from, more people from outside of the UK than there are from the UK. So I think that's a really impressive legacy in itself. But um, I think it's the fact that Anne is, she's, flawed she's beautifully flawed in fact and that's one of the things that attracted me to her in the first place she's there's so much mystery that surrounds her and, you know we love a good mystery don't we we love when we're not sure about something and, and you can dig deep and try and sort the work out the answer so there's mystery there's a lot that's unknown about her her life there's a lot that's debated even the things that you know we don't even know when she was born and I, this is just still hotly debated issue today how she spent her time while in France there's no documentary evidence of that there's just so much so I think that mystery element is very appealing whereas if we look at somebody like the the brilliant absolutely wonderful Catherine of Aragon we you know there's more things that are certain we know more that that element of mystery is not really there um of course because she was raised to be a queen 
So there's there's that. And I think the fact that there are all these questions leaves Anne really open to interpretation, as we've seen over the centuries. You know, she's kind of re-examined and she's, um, yeah, people try and rehabilitate her. But what we see is in all these Anne's of the centuries, like the Elizabethan Anne, the Victorian Anne, we see a reflection of the preoccupations of that time is what we see. So she's sort of reinvented and, and made into be whatever is our, our concerns at the time. Um, so she's open to interpretation, which I think then leaves the possibility for people to connect with her in many different ways. You know, I think she she is, I think there's a kind of mysterious quality to it too, which in a way is the same when you meet people today. You know, you meet someone, you immediately get on with them. And sometimes people suggest, oh, they're part of your soul family or they're this and that to try and explain that connection. I think the same thing happens with historical personalities. Sometimes you read about a person, yeah, they're interesting, but you don't have that connection. And then someone like Anne comes along and she she does inspire that kind of loyalty to a lot of people and that connection. And I do think it has to do with the fact that we, you know, that she's open to interpretation, that we can kind of connect with different aspects of her um, and she's still very, you know, she inspires a lot of young women today, which is wonderful to see. A lot of men as well, but there tends to be a lot of women interested in her story. And I think that's because of, of course, her intelligence, her perseverance, her wit, her talents. Um, so I think it's the fact that she's flawed, that we can see aspects of ourselves in her and that there's this variety of um, aspects that we can actually connect with as well. And it is an extraordinary story too, isn't it? Just in general, it's you know, it's perhaps not the exactly rags to riches story that it's often painted to be, but it is an, an extraordinary rise to power for, for this woman. And and you sort of can't make it up, of course, with Henry. And, you know, he moved heaven and earth to marry her, it took him a good six, seven years. And then within three years, she's dead. And not just her, but her family is crushed. And the lives of obviously the men accused alongside her ruined as well. And I think that that left such a huge gaping hole at, at the Tudor court. And I think it's a hole Henry tried to fill for the rest of his life and was never quite able to because the people he got rid of were, were brilliant, brilliant, larger-than-life personalities. And, and, you know, although he never would have admitted it, I think he must have just somewhere in there just thought, what in God's name have I done, really? You know, they were they were larger-than-life people. So I think the part of it the is also the story, which is just incredible. For Adrian, it can be difficult to fully reinterpret a historical person that has been seen in a negative light for many generations. I, I don't know. You know, maybe it's, it could be, you know, we could say like maybe it's laziness or maybe it's budgetary reasons like you know they do this scene because it costs less to film something that's a little more subtle or you know any of those reasons but I think that also is just like we as humans we tend to have blind spots right so and what I think is really fascinating is that uh you know, there, there is a recent book that came out about Jane Boleyn and there are so many things in there, like the, the language even that's used that are really problematic. And when I called that out, you know, that author was like, well, I've been writing about these women for so long and, you know, they're calling me misogynist and anti-feminist and like all these things. And it's like, 
Well, I'm not calling you that. I'm calling what you've written that. And and that's not even me necessarily like saying anything bad about it, but bringing it to your awareness because maybe he he isn't aware how that could be viewed as being very anti-feminist and very, you know, because at the end of the day, he he's male, right? He, he's got a different perspective and it doesn't necessarily have to be something that they've done on purpose or something that they're, they're trying to do to make the, the person they're writing about look bad, right? I mean, I have found myself having misogynistic views before because our culture is so built on that, right? And the only way to fix it is to bring awareness to it. So I think a lot of it is just we're conditioned to view women in this way. We're conditioned to write about them in these terms. We're conditioned to view them in these archetypes of like the sinner and the saint and the mother and the barren woman and the, you know. And so the only way that we're going to work out of that is to bring awareness to it. So I think that's a lot of it. I mean, I think that there the tide is slowly turning on that. But, um, you know, you find people who are really just like huge supporters of Catherine of Aragon. And there's this whole Team Aragon, Team Boleyn. And, you know, and I, and I, I get that, right? Because we all have our favorites and that we all connect in some ways. And, you know, for as much as I absolutely love Anne Boleyn, let me tell you, when I was going through my divorce, like I totally was like, I understand Catherine of Aragon now. <laughs> I would listen to that song from Six, to her song from Six. <laughs> and that was like, that was what got me through like those days where I was just really struggling. And so I do get like, we get form those attachments, right? And so, yeah, I mean, I still see people who really love Catherine that just, they cannot bring themselves to say anything nice about Anne. It's, it's hard to, to try to reframe that. You know, um, just because we're working against centuries of viewing, you know, women as being at fault for a lot of these these domestic issues. Right. You know, I, I wish I had a, a silver bullet that could change that. Um, I think it just comes down to we just keep repeating it. Right. Just keep repeating it over and over again. And then eventually it does click. The active fight and discussion around reinterpreting Anne Boleyn could have far-reaching implications for other wicked women's stories. The desire to see Anne in a positive light drives people to dig deeper into the sources surrounding her. People are encouraged to see the nuance around contemporary reports and search out the direct information for themselves. This is a skill people should bring to all women in history. They all deserve to be seen as whole and nuanced human beings. For Adrian, this is one of Anne Boleyn's most enduring legacies. You know, I want people to see her as this woman who was really 
confident and sure of herself and to not see that as a bad thing, right? Because we want women to be confident and assertive and and sure of themselves and to, to chase after their dreams and chase after the things that are important to them. And, you know, Anne very much did that. I, I don't know that... I don't know that I believe that she ever was in love with Henry. I think that in a way she viewed him as a means to an end. And obviously I think that they were very well matched in their mannerisms and their, their intelligence and the things that they loved. Like they were, they were actually a really good match. And so I think that in the end, like, they could have been really great companions, right? Because there was just so much that they had in common and they could debate things and challenge each other. Um, but you can't do those things with a king, <laughs> you know? Um, particularly a tyrannical king. <laughs> So, um, you know, but I just really want people to see, like, she was not afraid of her convictions and she did what she thought was the best course of action, the, the most efficient course of action, which I think we as women should do, right? So that's what I hope they take away from that. Because everybody is a shade of gray, right? We're never black or white. We're a shade of gray. And, and that's what, how we need to view her because she, she did have some, yeah, she could be kind of cruel and vindictive and she could, I mean, she did. Right. But I don't think any of us can say we never had those moments where we were just so focused on what it was we were trying to accomplish that we did not speak in the best way. I know I've been guilty of cruelty in my past as well, right? So I think that, you know, we need to, to also view those acts in context of her time and her position and all of these other mitigating factors. I love seeing Anne in so many forms and, and seeing her life kind of examined in, you know, more in detail in different areas. So, you know, we've got Natalie Gruniger's book, which really focuses on her, her last days, her last year. And you have, um, you know, Natalia Richards fiction book, called The Falcon's Rise. And I actually just got done listening to the audiobook of that. And it was so fascinating because I never really thought about Anne as a child, really, you know? Um, and so I just love how people are starting to sort of focus on different areas of her life that we've really kind of missed out on. Meanwhile, for Natalie, the concept of legacy when it comes to Anne has many facets. Legacy is an interesting one, isn't it? Because I think people automatically always think about a sort of tangible thing. And of course, the first thing that comes to most people's mind when you say legacy and Anne is Elizabeth I, you know, um, 
uh, for a Berlin to to at the end of this extraordinary story for a, a half Berlin to be on the throne is quite exceptional. You know, I think that is the other reason why we're so captivated by this story because of what we know, you know, happens during Elizabeth's reign and we sort of feel like Anne's been vindicated a bit in, in a way. So that in itself is extraordinary. But I, I think more importantly for me, what I would like to see is less, when we're talking about Anne, less division. Um, I would like to see sort of more unity. I've seen how her legacy and how her story can inspire real, like inspire real changes in people. And I've seen how it can connect people from all walks of life, from all over the globe, you know, um, and, and I think that's such a beautiful thing. And if, if we focused on that and learning about the sort of positive aspects um, and the example she set in terms of courage and perseverance and intelligence and wit and all these sorts of things, uh, that would make me very happy if I didn't have to respond to what about Catherine and what about what she did to Mary and and what about how she stole Henry? Like I would, I would love not to have to. And, and most of the time, no, I don't respond because I realize that there's nothing that I can say to those people that's going to actually change their mind. Anne was not a saint. Somebody else accused me of that the other day. They said, oh, I really enjoyed a podcast episode that I did, but I didn't like how you painted Anne, Anne to be this saint. And I thought, Oh my goodness, I've never said that ever. In fact, I love the fact that she's so flawed, that she is so much like us, you know, and she was not perfect, of course not, but can anyone listening claim to be perfect who have never done anything and then thought, oh, that probably wasn't the best choice that I made there to, you know, I, I just don't understand this, this judgment of her when, how can we judge if we ourselves are not perfect people? And as I've said already before, Anne had this incredible side, but she also had, you know, she was, she could be very rash. She could be, she had a temper on her. There's no doubt about that. You know, I think sometimes her actions were counterproductive. She acted before she kind of thought it through, which we've all done at some point. So I admire those faults in her because I think in the end, the courage and the dignity she showed just says a lot about her character I think and um and she was very loyal very committed to her family and to the people supporting her so I, I, all those aspects I'd love for us to sort of carry through and let us inspire inspire our everyday lives today um and and just yeah of course she wasn't she wasn't perfect you know I don't think anyone is and I think that's why people are so attracted to her story because there's that like I said the element of mystery but also just being able to connect on many different levels with her, I think is really important. The pressure that she had is often. And so when I was writing my book, The Final Year of Anne Boleyn, I wanted to really show the the context of those sort of last 18 months of her life and, and place her, you know, her downfall didn't occur in this sort of vacuum, which sometimes when we're looking at her, her downfall, we only look at the, the months of 1536 yet that we can learn so much from just going back a little bit more and understanding what's going on in Europe, what the political situation is like, what is happening at home and abroad, all very important aspects that contributed to what happened to Anne Boleyn. You know, so this didn't happen in a vacuum. And I think sometimes we forget we forget that as well. Um, but throughout that time, oh, yes, there are plenty of examples of her behaving in ways that you wouldn't say are very, very, very nice or very likable, you know. But, but again, I would remind people that she was human. This is where I think we've seen them so many times on film and we've read their names so many times in books that we they, they've kind of turned into characters, haven't they? Not real human beings. They're kind of characters taking on these roles. 
Whereas I think it's important to remember that they were very, very human and maybe, yes, different from us in, in certain ways, but also similar in many ways and still felt all those emotions we feel, you know, jealousy, hate, ambition, whatever, all of it, and woke up every day not knowing what's going to happen and just really did the best that they could do with the information that was, you know, at their hands at the time. So, yeah, it's, it's just such a fascinating story, isn't it? The destruction of the Berlin family, the dismantling, the systematic destruction of this family and of the men accused alongside her was horrific and brutal and left a gaping hole for many people for, gosh, decades, you know. And those family members would have felt it for the rest of their lives. Um, so I suppose just thinking about it in those terms, just to have a little bit of respect for the people we're talking about, again, before anyone says anything about Catherine, I have complete respect for Catherine. I think she was an amazing woman. And I wish that things had been different because I think her and Anne would have just been a formidable team had they been able to stay on the same side. But obviously life presented them with different paths and this is, you know, this is what is. But um, but yeah, I do often wonder, oh, they must, what a team they would have made those two. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because while Catherine was alive, Anne was safe. It's, it's an, another aspect to this extraordinary story that, it was in fact Catherine being alive that kept Anne alive and kept Anne safe because Henry, throughout most of fifth, well, throughout most of Anne's reign, really had Catherine to blame for all his troubles. Any trouble, it was Catherine's fault. You know, she said, "I can't have a, an alliance with the emperor because of Catherine," and then suddenly Catherine dies, and Henry's left looking around for someone to blame. And of course, Anne is the, the easiest person to blame for all his troubles. Um, so, so it's it's interesting, that, yeah, that while she's she's alive um and is is basically basically safe yeah and then of course all that falls apart and and is left very vulnerable and and if henry there was no other way really because had henry annulled his marriage or attempted to annul his marriage to anne as well he may it's it's like basically saying oh yes i was wrong for all these years and and catherine the emperor the pope everyone else was correct Henry is never, ever going to admit to being, in, in fact, he doesn't. He never, he's incapable of admitting to making mistakes. So to have annulled his marriage to Anne would have, in a way, admitted that they were right and he was wrong, that she should never have married her, that it's caused him a lot of problems, you know. And then he, there's the issue of then their children, Elizabeth, what, you know. Then he's, he's seen what's happened with Mary. She's refused to accept that she's not the rightful heir. Would Elizabeth do the same thing later on? Would people then come in support of Elizabeth? You know, there's all these things that are left kind of open. And I, you know, I just, I think that it would have been like accepting the Pope's authority again and, and accepting that they were all correct and he was wrong. And I don't think he would ever have done that. So I think he was waiting for a solution that was more permanent. When she stood up at the scaffold so courageously and and whatnot, she she did ask that it, that I think you probably know the speech. And if any person will medal of my cause, I require them to judge the best. So I think just keeping that in mind when we are having discussions about Anne and about any person from history, really, 